TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Hello, everyone. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Felix. I'm Mihir. And I'm Jill Avery, Senior Lecturer at Harvard Business School in Marketing. Wonderful to have you, Jill. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. So, Jill, I understand you just came back from Brazil. I did. I was visiting a company for a new case study down in Rio de Janeiro. The case is about a company called Farm Rio, which is a fashion brand originated in Brazil, but recently launched into the U.S., and moving quickly into Europe. That sounds absolutely marvelous. Hmm. And the case is, of course, close to your research, close to the topics that you're interested in. What would you like us to talk about today? Today, I'd love to talk about two topics. One is the topic of brand valuation. And Mm -hmm. the second Mm. is topics related to personal branding. How do we apply everything we know about branding and brand management to the brand of us or my personal brand? You know what's great about these topics is we haven't done a bunch on marketing, Felix. Yeah, And I feel like true. this is like a real big embrace of marketing. So both on brand valuation, which of course, Joel, I love because it's got a finance yeah, angle. of course. <laughs> <laughs> finance is peeking through. <laughs> I know. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on that. But then also personal branding. That sounds great. Wonderful. Let's do it. So, Jill, you recently had a provocative piece in HBR about building a personal brand. And I'm curious what provoked you to write that and why that frame on who we are. So tell us what you think about personal brands. Sure. So my work on personal branding actually came out of discussions with my MBA students here at Harvard Business School. I teach a course here called Creating Brand Value, and at the end of every semester, my students would come to me and say, Professor Avery, do you have anything on personal branding? And I would Mm. kind of grimace and say, ooh, yuck, I don't (laughs) do that. That's not my thing. That's hilarious. I learn uh, and I teach how to brand products and services. 
I don't really brand people. But every semester, there was this inherent demand. And finally, I got to the point where I realized part of my aversion to the topic is a personal aversion because I'm not very good at personal branding. I'm not very good at selling myself, which is kind of counterintuitive because I've been a marketer for over 30 years. I can sell (laughs) virtually any product or service to anybody. But I really have trouble selling myself. It's a personal weakness that has plagued me throughout my career. So I realized if I wanted to do this work, I really needed to partner with an expert, with someone who understands how to translate all of the branding theories and frameworks that I use in my work, marketing products and services, and uh, apply that to the work of branding ourselves. So I met an interesting collaborator at a conference Rachel Greenwald is a professional dating coach and matchmaker, and I started chatting with Rachel at this conference, and we realized that we actually shared a lot in common, and part of what excited us was the idea of bringing some of the branding theory into the practice of personal branding that Rachel was using with her clients. So I confess I'm kind of with you, Jill, in my aversion to this way of thinking, (laughs) but I'm curious what came out of these parallels. So students wanted it, and what is it that the brand lens teaches us? I think applying the brand lens to this is really important, and people have a visceral reaction to the idea of personal branding, just like you and I had. I think it's a matter of rebranding the concept. So if I said to you, (laughs) let's talk about how you can manage your reputation moving forward, you would be totally fine with that. But if I say, hey, Mahir, let's talk about managing your personal brand, suddenly you get uncomfortable with that concept. Mm -hmm. So I want you to think about your personal brand as your reputation. It's actually not something that belongs to you. It's the associations and beliefs and attitudes and most importantly, the expectations that others hold about you in their minds. And those expectations are in the forms of narratives about the value that you can provide. Mm. So what excites me about getting into this area is when I design customer value propositions for brands, it's always focused on the audience or the target market for whom do you want to create value. And it's focused on defining and refining the differentiated value that that brand or product can bring to the world. So too with people, the process of personal branding is a strategic and intentional process of uncovering who are you, what makes you special, and what value do you wish to bring to the world? What difference do you want to make in the world? And being able to communicate that clearly and memorably in a compelling way helps you achieve your personal goals, your professional goals, and helps the world see the best version of you. I think the part that feels maybe not so comfortable is when I think about marketing, it's very outward-oriented. Just the way you explained, it's like I'm basically molding a product, I'm molding a service, I'm molding the story, retelling the story in the face of thinking about the particular consumer group that I want to reach. Applying this logic to a person feels somehow not quite right because 
to a first approximation, I am who I am. And I don't have much of an intention of saying, oh, I would be much more popular if I smiled more often, or I would be much more popular if I had, I don't know, a better sense of humor. The whole idea of molding one's personality to be more successful, and that can mean very different things for different people, but the whole idea of sort of changing me as a person or my personality or even just the way I talk about myself in order to increase personal attractiveness. That's the part where I somehow feel that works for products and services. I'm not so sure that works for people. Can I just pile on here, Felix? Because I think I'm with you. Not to go like Marxist on you, Jill, but like this is like the ultimate version of taking a human and making them into a commodity. I think everything you're saying makes sense. But (laughs) like Felix, I share this kind of gut instinct of we're basically anchoring ourselves in the way the market understands us as opposed to anchoring ourselves in the way we understand ourselves. I know. It sounds icky. When we first hear (laughs) about this, it sounds icky. And that's where I think that visceral reaction comes from. I think what you're both getting at here is the concept of an authentic self, that Uh when I present myself to others, I want to do so authentically. I don't want to have to put on a costume and be someone that I'm not. And that's why the process of personal branding is first, self-reflective. It's about understanding who I am, what makes me unique, what makes me special, and what do I want to do in the world. It's first understanding the real me, the authentic me. And then it's thinking about how do I get other people to understand that real me? How do I get other people to see my unique value? So The second part of the process is thinking about who I am and thinking about how I enact that authentic me in all of my interpersonal interactions with people. And so personal branding is not about being inauthentic. It's actually about leaning into the real authentic you Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. celebrating everything that makes you unique. So I think that sounds interesting and appealing if you explain it that way. But even the first step, so say this idea that I'm somehow unique, I've never really thought of myself as that. There are lots of people like me who are very similar, and I understand why that's a branding issue, but I also think as a person, that's okay. In fact, this sense that many people have that they're super special and everything about them is different and worthy a longer investigation. That in and of itself, I find often than when it shows up in personal branding efforts, I find not so appealing. I find it, who do you think you are in most respects or <laughs> like many other people also? I think that's a good point, Felix. And I think personal branding is both about fitting in and standing out from others. So if you think about why personal branding is so necessary, think about the instances where the stakes are high and it's important Mm -hmm. for us to manage our reputation or make a good impression on someone else. And it's when we apply for a job or vie for a promotion or advocate for a raise or try to land a new client or that type of thing. In that moment, we both need to fit in and find that common affinity that we have with the other person. But we also want to show 
that we are different from, unique from all the other people who might be vying to create value for that person as well. So it's about finding that sense of differentiation while recognizing and forming those common bonds. You know, implicitly, I think, Felix, you're raising some cultural differences, which is often in the U.S., it is about how special I am. Mm -hmm. I think in other parts of the world, that's just not as interesting a question. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm curious, Jill, how you think about this across cultural boundaries. Yeah, I mean, we each have been socialized in a certain culture that says whether or not it feels acceptable to self-promote, to talk about what makes me me and what kind of value I want to offer to the world. So some of us are going to be more comfortable, more natural at projecting and enacting a personal brand. And others of us are going to try to avoid it or feel less confident or more tentative about doing this work. The reality is we all have a personal brand, whether we like it or not. It is that reputation that lives in the the minds of other people. So there's no avoiding personal branding. It's just a matter of whether you'd like to do this strategically and intentionally or whether you'd like to let your reputation be formed by other people. And so we talk in our work about who do you want to write your story? Do you want to write your own story or do you want to let other people write the story of you? And the process that we lay out in the article is about being more intentional about the story that you're allowing other people to form about you. I think that's so interesting, I have to say. And I I confess I'm still thinking about the question you asked, which is, who do I want to write the story of me? And I think my answer may well be others. Why not let the world figure out who I am? Why be so conscious of making sure the world thinks about me in the right way? Yeah, I guess what I would say in answer to that, Mahir, is we rely on other people to help us achieve our goals. And so in certain circumstances, it matters Mm -hmm. what other people think of us, because otherwise I won't get the job or I won't get the raise or I won't land the client. So in certain situations, It's really important, the reputation that others hold of us. Sure. But I want to flip the focus from thinking about this as all about me, that personal branding is about me and defining my story in isolation. Personal branding is about defining your story in terms of the value that you want to provide to others. So it's actually both inward looking to form the story, but outward facing in understanding that value that you're going to provide. So it's less about you and it's more about what you hope to do in the world and how you hope to change the world through other people. I think... My biggest hesitation is around people thinking longer term, how am I going to change the world? And I think my answer is you're not going to change the world. In the end, very few people have long-lasting impact on the way things work. And I think leading a happy life without resorting to notions of, oh my God, what I do is so critically important— That somehow seems to be something that I, at least personally, aspire to. How good was my day? How good was my week? doesn't really depend on an answer to a question, how did I change the world this week? Because I think the honest answer is most weeks I don't. Mm -hmm. 
in the grand scheme of things, it just most often does not really matter all that much what I do. And living a good life and feeling good about what you do and how you're engaged in the presence of knowing that it's not all that important, that to me is actually something that I find very appealing if I can pull it off. I think, Felix, you change the world every moment that you live <laughs> in it. And I think that's what personal branding is all about. It's understanding the value that you want to bring to the important people in your life, the value that you want to bring in the little piece of the world that's important to you. Mm. Think about it as helping you realize your personal purpose. And so it is changing the world. It may not be changing the world for everyone <laughs> in the world <laughs> at once or solving climate change or some big aspiration like that. But I think through all of our interpersonal interactions, we change other people. We affect their lives. We achieve hopefully one little step towards our personal purpose in everything that we do. The questions we're talking about are very deep questions that humanity has struggled with for millennia. What strikes me about it is this is really just a business frame on that problem. We've always struggled with meaning. Many of us use religion for that. People use arts for that. People use all kinds of things for that. What's striking to me is just that business is so powerful today that it has become a frame on meaning. And that's why the students are coming to you with this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the question is old, but the frame is new. And the question, I guess, for me is, what does the frame get us that's different? And also, what does it tell us that we're using the frame? <laughs> and for me, that latter question is the hardest question because it feels like the penetration of commercial instincts into personal identity. And that's what worries me about this. Mm -hmm. If we think about the practice of branding, it's been informed for a long time by many disciplines, philosophy, sociology, anthropology. It's rooted in the human experience. And so a lot of the branding principles and theories come out of these bodies of research. So if we think about branding a product or service and we think about branding a person, what we're really striving for here is creating meaning that has value to people. And so, yes, I think we can look to religion, philosophy, anthropology, sociology, psychology, all of the social sciences and the humanities to inform how to do this better. I'm curious what you think about the gender implications of this or the degree to which this is particularly helpful for groups that are historically marginalized, which it strikes me that this is maybe a particularly powerful frame for folks who have not been at the center of the universe for a long time. And maybe that's the real power of this, which is giving people tools for whom this exercise is novel and really particularly important. Does that ring true to you or do you think it's kind of far-fetched? So I think personal branding is important for everyone, but I think it's particularly important for groups of people who know that other people hold views about them that may not represent the real them. So for instance, if you know that you're walking into a group of people and they hold a stereotype about you, for instance, that girls aren't as good at math. 
what you may want to do in your personal branding is highlight your quantitative skills. Make sure that part of your narrative as you walk into that interview is highlighting the analytical experiences that you've had. So part of personal branding is recognizing that regardless of what you do, people are going to hold associations, beliefs, and attitudes about you. And you can use the strength of your own personal branding efforts to try to communicate the story that you want to be told. It's actually a very liberating story for those of us who feel like we need to take control of our story because if we don't, other people are telling a story that actually doesn't represent the authentic us. That's really interesting. So Felix... Your brand in three words. (laughs) I would guess after today's conversation, it is just like everyone else and leaving no imprint on the world. Yes. (laughs) That comes very close. I'm sorry. I'm just kidding. Can I try mine, Mihir? Yes, please. So I've been experimenting with my personal brand. And Mm -hmm. here's what my working definition is right now. I co-create value as a collaborative storyteller and intellectual guide to champion and empower underdogs and bring meaning to people's lives. Oh, that's beautiful. (laughs) I think that's better than the one I made up for Felix. (laughs) Slightly. (laughs) But it's really hard. This is hard work. It takes a great deal of self-reflection, and it takes working through that uncomfortableness to really understand who am I and what is it that I want to achieve in the world and how can I best communicate my story authentically in a way that I can live and enact it authentically in everyday interactions such that people see me for who I am and understand the value that I'm trying to bring to the world. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Go 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. So Jill, brand valuation, what's on your mind? So this is a topic that I teach here in my MBA course on creating brand value. And it's a really important topic because in the course, we discuss brands as assets, intangible assets that contribute to the financial future of a firm. 
The challenge with viewing brands as assets, though, is it's very hard to understand the value of that asset. We make continual investments in this asset through the form of marketing expenditures, but we haven't had a good way or a reliable way to measure the impact of those investments on building the intangible asset value of the brand. And Jill, what do you think separates the problem with brands from the general problem? If you went to HR, people don't realize how valuable are secret sauces with employees. Or if you went to production, people would be like, you know, we have all these great ways of doing work and they never get valued by the market or they never get valued generally. What's the specific problem, do you think, with brands? I think the big difference here is for many firms, their brands are their most valuable asset and often the only sustainable competitive advantage that the firm enjoys. And so understanding the sometimes quite significant value of that asset and how it provides us with competitive advantages is a tool that managers need to understand so that they can understand how much to invest in that asset and whether those investments are working over time. Mm -hmm. What we're talking about here beyond the intrinsic value of the product, what is the value of the brand bringing to either a purchase situation or a consumption situation? And, you know, the Pepsi Coke challenge is an interesting example because people can't tell the difference apart in unbranded taste tests. But if you put people into an fMRI machine and measure their brain waves, and you tell them you're drinking Coke or you tell them that you're drinking Pepsi, we can see a difference in how people's brains light up and respond to the brand of their choice. So there's something meaningful, there's something valuable about the meaning system and the associations that brands bring to the underlying products that they adorn. It seems like one of the big problems that you're trying to get at with this is there is just huge amounts of marketing spend. And in a way, without understanding this problem, it's really hard to guide that spend. Is that the real problem here? There's pressure on CMOs and CFOs to justify the return on investment within the measurement period. So we're often trying to think about if I spend a dollar here, what is the return on investment on revenues and profits over the short term? But the reality is a brand is a long-lived asset that generates value way into the future for firms. And so measuring ROI over the short term underestimates the true return on investment that the marketing investment could be making. So what that leads to is either cuts where the marketing budget is often ripe for budget cutting during budget season when <laughs> money is scarce, or it leads to a preference for short-term decision-making where marketing managers feel pressure to receive a faster return on investment rather than a stronger return on investment that might take into account lag effects and longer lingering effects of their marketing investments. And uh, let me try to be the finance jerk for a sec. Please. So <laughs> you suggested that the problem is really probably not enough marketing spend. Isn't it conceivable that it goes exactly the other way? That basically without any way to monitor this, is the problem sometimes like overspending? It could be. Without that visibility on what we're doing to the underlying asset and whether we are building or actually degrading its value, we could be making too much marketing investment or we could be making the wrong types of marketing investments. 
let's talk about Tesla. Tesla is a car company and a very successful one. And I would guess we would think that their brand is highly valuable. Yet that brand has been built by, I think, very little marketing spend and has been built entirely by products and perhaps the reputation of Elon Musk and a whole bunch of other things, but not really by marketing efforts. So if I valued the brand of Tesla, I'm not sure I would attribute that to anything other than it's a really interesting company, which people really like, but it doesn't have much to do with marketing spend or anything else. That problem seems pretty deep in the sense anytime I value anything, it's some agglomeration of lots of things, including marketing spend. But it's also the product itself. It's the quality of the product. It's the durability of the product. It's lots and lots of other things. Do you know what I mean? I do. So if we think about the Tesla brand and estimates of its value range around $50 billion. So it's one of the world's most valuable brands. And it has not been built through a lot of advertising spend, but I would argue that it has been built through a tremendous amount of marketing. Everything that Elon Musk has done from the beginning of the founding mm -hmm. of his company, I would term as part of his marketing investment, his engagement with the press, mm -hmm. his events and antics that create news <laughs> cycles. Yeah. So while Tesla hasn't spent a lot in paid media, it has spent a lot of time generating owned media and certainly generating earned media by engaging in these types of things. So brand value doesn't just come from advertising expenditures. It comes from how we manage all of the customer touch points and how we engage customers in experience with the company, with the brand, and with the product across those touch points. So how about the following experiment? Say, once a week or maybe once a month, we take a group of consumers, we show them a car that is not marked. It's a Tesla, but you wouldn't know unless you're really into cars. And then we ask them, what's your willingness to pay for this car? And maybe they can test drive it and they can see what it's like. And then we do the same with the same group of people or a different group of people. But now we have the Tesla logo on the car. And we measure, essentially, what's the difference in willingness to pay. And that difference, I think, is a function of how much we spend on marketing last week, two months ago, five years ago. And why isn't that kind of measurement a pretty reliable metric for how much the brand contributes to valuations over and above what's fabulous about the car in the first place? On the Tesla example... The price premium is very real. And in fact, it's not just your willingness to pay for the product that's important to understand, but it's how the brand actually changes your consumption experience. And this is where consumer research can be helpful in um, understanding what brands do to us. So several years ago, consumer researchers ran a study with the Porsche brand, and they asked men to drive two cars. They were both Porsches, but one was branded as a Porsche and one was left mm -hmm. unbranded. And they measured all kinds of things, including willingness to pay, but also some physiological measures like your <laughs> level of testosterone and the level of cortisol, <laughs> okay. yeah. your stress hormone that you experienced when you were driving the car. When participants were told that the car was a Porsche, their levels of testosterone actually increased. And so 
brands not only work on us cognitively to increase that willingness to pay, but can actually increase satisfaction with the product and the total product experience, which can lead not only to a price premium, but also a brand loyalty effect, which would not be captured in in that calculation. So when people talk about the price premium methodology, I think it leaves some of the aspects of brand valuation on the table. It doesn't take into account reducing the variability of future cash flows that comes from a loyalty effect. And it also doesn't take into account any of the cost savings or expense savings that strong brands bring to the table. So yes, we can capture the revenue effect of a strong brand through that Tesla example, but we're leaving other important parts of brand valuation left unmeasured. I'm curious, Jill, on a slightly related topic, which is previously on this podcast, we've talked a little bit about India and China and companies trying to create global brands. And you've also thought a lot about that problem as well. Do you think they've been as successful as they could be in building global brands? What could they be doing differently? And is building a global brand today something that's substantially harder than it was, let's just say, 30 years ago? So when I think about global branding, I actually think there's some forces that are working in favor of global brands. The world itself is globalizing. Media is global. Consumers are consuming media across country lines. So those country and even cultural lines that used to define a market are permeable now. Uh People are either physically or metaphysically traveling across those lines. I think the big challenge in global branding is finding the stories and the meaning structure that are going to have cultural resonance across country or Hmm. cultural lines. And I think for some categories, it's easy to find those meta-narratives that really touch the soul of people regardless of what culture they're in. In other categories, and I'll, I'll use food and beverage as a great example, food and beverage is so culturally situated and there's so many cultural norms and practices, differences in tastes for that. Food is so close to who we are and how we grew up. And so you see less global brands in food categories than you might in categories like technology or personal Mm. care, where the functional meanings and the stories you can tell about functional value tend to resonate across cultural lines. I confess, I'm thinking back to that old saw, Jill, which I'm sure you know, which is I spend $100 on marketing and half of it works and half of it doesn't, but I never know which half it is. <laughs> yes. And I would have thought in many ways that over the last 50 years, given the nature of advertising and how it's changed and our ability to target and our ability to do so many things better, it still kind of seems like it's true, though. <laughs> like that this is an incredible part of the capitalistic endeavor, which we still really, really struggle in quantifying. And As good as we've gotten on a lot of things in marketing and advertising, reaching per se the person I want to reach, as an example, we're still left with these fundamental ambiguities about (laughs) whether it pays off. 
which is kind of remarkable. It is remarkable. And I think marketing return on investment has come a long way. There's certain types of marketing that we can easily and with confidence attribute directly to a purchase. Mm -hmm. And the rise of digital marketing and e-commerce has Mm -hmm. tightened that causal chain of attribution. Absolutely. But if you think about what marketing is designed to do, it's designed to change consumers' purchase and use behaviors. And so what we're looking for when we measure return on investment is these pre-behavioral metrics, these perceptual metrics that we call brand health metrics that tell us, did the investment actually change the way consumers think about the brand? But then we're waiting. We're waiting for that investment to actually change the purchase and use behaviors so that we can start to measure firm-based brand equity or how the marketing investment actually changed the value that the firm is realizing from those differential consumer purchase and use behaviors. So it's a chain of events that have to happen. And sometimes that chain takes a very long time to materialize. So if we think about the car category, for example, I might see years of BMW advertising before I'm A, old enough to purchase a car, (laughs) or B, have the financial means to purchase the car that I want. And so in those categories where inter-purchase cycles are long or there's some other barriers to purchase that must be overcome, that marketing investment might take a very long time to pay off. Mm -hmm. It strikes me that this issue of not really being able to calculate what we care about, it's certainly pertinent for marketing, but it strikes me as a much more general problem. We have so much more data in management, and I think so many more management decisions are now better decisions because we have data. But there are really big decisions for which we lack data for conceptual reasons or for practical reasons. We will never really have the data. And one of the really interesting questions, I hadn't really thought about it much before this conversation is, what are decision rules when you lack data? Mm. It's probably not a good idea not to spend any money on marketing, but at the same time, we can't really measure how much is the right amount. How should you respond to drastic changes in consumer behavior, radical changes in technology? For so many of the really big decisions, data is scarce or non-existing. And I think your question here is really, what do you do if you can't know? I think this is why I always talk about marketing as both a science and an art, because we do have tons of data informing our marketing decisions, and that's the beauty of the age that we're living in. But sometimes that data doesn't predict the future with great accuracy. So, for example, we have years and years of daily, hourly purchase data in the fashion industry. But what people bought last year in certain fashion categories has very little to do with what they might buy next year because fashion changes its cycles and it doesn't always cycle in predictable ways. And so in those moments, the data can inform But that's when we need managerial judgment to be able to apply the art of decision-making on top of that data to get better prediction. I think it'll be okay. I just had a vision of my potential grandchild walking around with like an fMRI 
headband and they are constantly being monitored for the next 20 years while they absorb BMW ads is somehow being monitored as it's being built in their brain and then we'll have enough data. I'm being facetious, Felix, so I think you're exactly right. I mean, over the course of our careers, up until recently, I thought the answer was more data because we lacked data so often with decisions. Now, I think we're reaching the end of that logic, mm-hmm. which is what I think you're pointing us towards, which is we've quickly reached the end of that logic where data is readily available. And the answer often can be, well, let's get the data. But it's all these more interesting questions where we actually need judgment, to use your language, Jill. Yeah. At least until we're strapping on fMRIs on my grandchildren. <laughs> so the question I have for you, Mihir, in that future of yours where your grandchild wears the headband, is the grandfather running regressions on the data? You bet. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay, Felix, recommendation. What do you got? I have a book this week. It's by Damon Gelgut, and it's called The Promise. It takes place in South Africa towards the end of apartheid and then the first couple of years after And it tells the story of a family, complicated relationships. And one reason why I recommend it is I can't really remember having read a book where so quickly you have such a fabulous sense of who these people are. Hmm. Language does it. The imagery does it. It's probably many little things. But even after reading just a couple of pages, I thought, oh, my God, I sort of know who this person is. And I have a sense of what happens to this person and how it can impact them. And so it was really a remarkable reading experience that I hope I can share with everyone. That sounds great. And sounds like great personal branding. (laughs) Maybe. Who knows? (laughs) This is your second straight South Africa recommendation. So I can tell this trip had a big impact. That's fantastic. Jill, what do you have? I also have a book that I would love to recommend. It's a book that came out in 2021, and it's entitled Clara and the Sun. And it's by one of my favorite authors, Kazuo Ishiguro. And I think it's particularly resonant for me right now because, like many of you, I have spent the last couple of weeks playing around with ChatGPT and exploring <laughs> the newly enhanced world of artificial intelligence. And this is a book that asks some very deep questions in the context of a very compelling story. And it asks the questions related to what happens when machines become more human-like mm-hmm. and what happens when humans become more machine-like and asks us to imagine a future world where those things are happening simultaneously. And I I found it very thought-provoking and interesting to imagine that that future reality, which seems to be getting closer away (laughs) from fiction and towards our reality every day. It's a fabulous book. I loved reading it. That is a fantastic book. I read it, I think, when it came out, but reading it post-ChatGPT is going to be like a different experience, I would imagine. No, that sounds great. What did you bring me here? So we are three for three on books and a little bit on point of our topic of conversation, which is Huasu is a writer and he has a memoir that came out. So a little bit on the personal branding thing, I guess. And it's called Stay True. And it's just a brilliant memoir. I don't think I've actually ever read a memoir. I've kind of always hated the idea mm-hmm. of the genre, but he just does it so spectacularly well. And it paints a portrait of 
1990s Berkeley when he was in college. And anybody who went to college roughly around that time will find it really wonderful. And then he loses somebody in a fairly dramatic way. And it's about that period of time. Hmm. And so it's just a wonderful memoir. He also has written a recent piece about J. Crew, Jill, which is about the brand of J. Crew. And I think for both those reasons, I just think he's just a great writer. And that memoir is really, really fantastic. So Hwasu, Stay True, and J. Crew. Wonderful. Which is also, oh my God, a rhyme. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> Excellent. Lots of reading suggestions. So much to read. That's exactly right. And this was it for tonight. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This was After Hours from the TED Audio Collective. <laughs> <laughs>